Hey, welcome, folks. Good to have you. I know, you're all tired. It's been a long day, right? Well, we're going to crank it up tonight, okay? We're going to crank it up tonight. Before we go to Hebrews chapter 5 tonight, I want to direct your attention to a verse at the end of the book. It's chapter 13, verse 22. And this is sort of a verse where the author is sort of summing up uh, what he thinks his book is all about. And he thinks it's a book of exhortation. But I like what he says in Hebrews 13.22 to the readers of this and eventually to those of us who would read this book. He says, folks, there's going to be some parts of this, all of it, but there's especially going to be some parts of this that you're going to need to bear with this word of exhortation. In other words, it, it, it could be very easy to, to read it and to not like what he's saying, and to put it down, and to just, nah. And he's saying, bear with it. Okay, even if you don't like it at first, pick it back up and read it again. Bear with this word of exhortation, because it is a word of exhortation. It is a word to encourage us to keep on keeping on, to persevere in the Christian faith, as these folks were in the first century, to be walking through trials and tribulations and sufferings and persecutions and all of that, to keep on keeping on. Bear with it, because everything that he's going to tell them in this book is going to help them navigate the most difficult times of their life. It's going to show them where their strength and hope and all of that is. And we've talked about that the first couple of weeks that we've been in the book of Hebrews. And so I wanted to remind us of that tonight. I know we haven't looked at Hebrews 13.22 yet. Because the passage we're going to look at tonight really begins some of the most difficult parts of the book. And I don't mean difficult in that we're not going to be able to understand it, but difficult in that it's really going to be in our face. But it's sort of like that friend who comes along and says, I need to tell you some things that you need to know. Maybe not things that you want to hear, but they're things that you need to hear for your own benefit, for your own well-being, for your own good. And that's where the writer of Hebrews is coming in, in chapter 13, verse 22. He says to this, Bear with this word of exhortation. Don't just turn it off. Truly listen to what I'm telling you because it's really going to profit you. So now if you go back to chapter 5, all of chapter 5 begins this sort of explanation of the priesthood. And he goes back to the Old Testament and builds upon that foundation by saying, look, the priesthood was one of the main tenets of Judaism. The priesthood is one of the most important things the Old Testament taught because the priesthood, that priest, was the bridge between men and God. It was that go-between. It was that mediator between men and God. And so the priesthood was always huge. Well, we know that as we come into the New Testament, that the New Testament teaches that Jesus Christ is now our high priest. He is our bridge to God. He is the one who can bring us to God and bring us into a personal relationship with God. So the priesthood is very, very important. But the thing that he goes into here is, again, he's primarily talking to Jews. And, and the first objection that a Jew is going to have whenever this guy begins to say that Jesus Christ is our priest is, they're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. In the Old Testament, in order to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. You had to be a Levite. You had to be born from Aaron, Levi, and on down. And the way you became a priest in the Old Testament is just being born into that family. It didn't, you know, it wasn't what your character was, what your ability was, whatever. If you were born into that family, 
you became a priest. That's what, that was your role. Your role was determined by your physical descendancy and your lineage. You were from the tribe of Levi. That's where you went. That's how you served. So the Jew would say, well, whoa, whoa, this Jesus Christ that you're talking about who's a priest, there's no precedent that's ever been set for somebody outside the line of Aaron to be a priest. And the writer of Hebrews, who knew his scriptures and, of course, knew God, said, oh, yes, there has been a precedent set. All the way back in the book of Genesis, there was, in fact, a priesthood set up outside the line of Aaron, okay, and even before the line of Aaron, and it was a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Now, there's a name to name all your babies. All right? I can just see it now. All the next boys that are born into Cornerstone, there's going to be tons of Melchizedeks, isn't there? Maybe not. Okay. In fact, I'm just going to read these first section of, of Hebrews so you get the flow then of where he's coming from. The first part, he just begins to talk about a lot of, and I don't want to get bogged down here tonight, okay? Because, you know, we could talk about the priesthood, and not that that's not important, but we want to tie that back to us and how it applies to us. So he says, For every high priest is taken from among the people, appointed to represent them before God, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. This was the, the role of the priest. He is able to deal compassionately with those who are ignorant and erring, since he also is subject to weakness. For this reason, he is obligated to make sin offerings for himself as well as for the people. No one assumes this honor on his own initiative, but only when called to it by God, as in fact Aaron was. Again, it wasn't that you, it was a democratic vote. You, you didn't campaign to be a priest or anything like that. You were a priest because you were appointed by God because you were from the tribe of Aaron. So also, verse 5, Christ did not glorify himself in becoming high priest. But the one who glorified him was God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have fathered you. As also in another place God said, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the precedent had been set. So that any objection by a Jew to the fact that Jesus Christ had no right to be a priest for me, the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Jews especially, Oh, yes, he does. Because he's following the line of Melchizedek not the line of Aaron. Now again, I don't want to get too bogged down in that, okay? The important thing is that God had set this all up, especially for our Jewish brothers and sisters, so that they, okay, you're right. I, I can't now object to the priesthood of Christ just upon the fact that he was not from the tribe of Levi. We know that he was from the tribe of Judah. So, during his earthly life, Christ offered both requests and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him out of death. He was heard because of his devotion. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. And by being perfected in this way, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And he was designated by God as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So that's all that that's talking about. It's just building upon the fact that Jesus Christ could be a priest. He's following the order of Melchizedek rather than of Aaron. Now, here's where I want to get to tonight. Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5. This really applies to us. Because these verses are really talking to us even today about the marks of spiritual maturity. And what he is challenging these people who are going through very difficult times, is that one of the best things that you and I can do for ourselves 
is to continue to grow and mature in our walk with God, in our relationship with God. That's the best thing that we can do. And if we don't do that, we're only hurting ourselves and we're only not giving ourselves all the resources that we need in order to navigate some of these most difficult times in our life. So, notice what he says, verse 11. On this topic, the topic of this Melchizedekian priesthood, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain, but it's not difficult to explain because it couldn't be understood. No, notice, it's difficult to explain since you who I am writing to, notice, have become sluggish or dull in hearing. For though you should in fact be teachers by this time, you need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. You have gone back to needing milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. Therefore, chapter 6, verse 1, here's like the key verse of the entire book. Therefore, we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ, the ABCs about Jesus Christ, and move on to maturity. Because in moving on to spiritual maturity, we're going to benefit, we're going to benefit all those around us, we're going to be stronger, we're going to be able to navigate this a whole lot better if we just continue to make progress and move forward. Now, I want to go back then, beginning in verse 11, for just a few moments tonight, and I want to talk a little bit about the marks of spiritual maturity that he brings out in this passage. First, you'll notice in verse 11, he reminds these readers that they used to not be dull or sluggish in hearing. Notice he says, you have become. And even at the end of verse 12, you have gone back to needing milk, not solid food. So the implication there is this. There was a time in their Christian walk and in their relationship with Jesus Christ where they were on this level. And now all of a sudden they have slipped back. They have gone backwards rather than forwards because, again, one of the principles the Bible teaches is either we're moving forward in our relationship with Christ or we're going back. There is no such thing as remaining static. There is no such thing as getting to a certain plateau and being able to stay there. The Bible teaches that because we are in a spiritual entity here, our relationship with Christ, that we're either moving forward, making progress, moving on to more maturity, or we're moving backward. And the sad thing here with the readers of this is that they had become sluggish. They didn't start out that way. They started out fully embracing the Word and going to church faithfully and reading and studying their Bible and having devotions and their prayer life was vibrant and they were fellowshipping with other Christians and they were taking advantage of every opportunity that God gave them to grow and to be encouraged as we've talked about in the book of Hebrews. But somewhere, they got sideways. And somewhere along the line in their relationship, they became sluggish. They became dull of hearing. And here's one of the first marks of spiritual maturity. The word sluggish or dull in your translation, literally in the original language, means no push. And one of the marks of spiritual maturity is that I am always at a place where I am pushing forward, making more progress. Pushing forward, 
pushing, pushing, pushing. In other words, we could say it different ways. Never satisfied with where I'm at spiritually. You know, not content with where I'm at, but always seeking to continue to grow and move forward and mature more and more. Now, I realize, Tuesday night, the mind, a lot of, I'm, I'm talking to the wrong group of people, you know, because that's the reason why you guys are at the mine on Tuesday night. And we've got to get that word out to a lot of other people who need to be part of Bible studies and life groups and small churches and whatever. Because that's it. There's got to be that push there to keep moving forward. You see, a lot of folks get the misconception that salvation is the end. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm on my way to heaven. That's it, right? No. The Bible says salvation isn't the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of this wonderful relationship that I can have here on earth with the Lord and that I can grow in. So my salvation, when I get saved, when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, when I settle that part of it, that just is the beginning. And then I begin my whole life of growth and maturity and becoming more of all that God created me to become whenever He created me and placed me on this earth. No push. People who are going after spiritual maturity are people who are continually pushing forward. Like the Apostle Paul in Philippians when he says, even the great Apostle Paul, I've not arrived yet. Philippians chapter 3. I've not arrived yet. Well, if Paul could say he hasn't arrived yet, I guarantee you Jeff Royce has not arrived yet. I have not arrived yet. And so Paul went on to say, but I forget the things that are behind me, good and bad. I'm not going to be... Uh, they're not going to be a burden to me uh, that the things that I've done wrong in the past, I'm not going to let that distract me. I'm also not going to let all the good distract me either. I'm going to forget all the stuff in the past and I'm going to press forward toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Always striving forward. Always moving forward. That was Paul. And that's a mark of spiritual maturity. A push. You see, we all need that push. And, and the, the key is that that push can't always, when we're talking about spiritually mature, that push can't always come from outside of us. I mean, it's good to have other Christians encouraging us to read our Bible and pray and pray together and all that and come to church and all that kind of stuff. That's all good. And we've already talked about that. But to really spiritually mature, that push has got to come from within me. I can't always depend on other people to be pushing me along or dragging me along or encouraging me along, eventually I've got to get to the point where I want it myself. And it's an internal motivation. I don't need anybody outside of myself motivating me to spiritual maturity. It's a burning desire within my own heart. That's what Paul meant when he told the Philippians, you guys have to work out your own salvation. And when he said that, what he, there's a lot of bad interpretations of that verse. But I believe the right interpretation is the Philippian Christians were way too dependent upon Paul. They, it was like they couldn't, they couldn't make a move without Paul. And Paul is saying, look guys, you've got to get to a point where you work out your own salvation. Where you stand on your own feet and I'll be there for you. I'll always support you. I will always encourage you. But that motivation has got to come from within at some point. It's got to kick in yourself. That's a mark of spiritual maturity. No push. Or push. Secondly, for though you should in fact be teachers by this time. Again, I just want to direct your 
attention to that phrase, by this time, the word there in the original language speaks of not a quality of time, but a quantity of time. And the writer of Hebrews is just simply saying that there comes a point in our relationship with God where we should be up to a certain level. And it's sort of like comparing our spiritual life to our physical life. Hopefully, at 45, I'm not still doing the habits that I did when I was five years old. Hopefully, I've grown past that. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. That the way I behave if I'm ten years old in the Lord is going to be a little bit different than when I was two years old in the Lord. So that by this time, God expects. In fact, the phrase implies it is our duty. It is our obligation to grow. That God did not design a personal relationship with us to be something where I became a Christian and I stayed a baby Christian my whole life. Where I'm one year old and that's all the further I progressed. That was it. I hit a ceiling and I never went beyond that. That's not the design that God had for salvation. That is not the design that God had for this personal relationship. I illustrate it with this. There were two teachers up for a promotion. One had 25 years of experience in the school. One had 10. And the principal picked the one who had 10 years of experience. And the one who had 25 went back to the principal and said, how was I passed over having 25 years of experience compared to the one who had 10? The principal responded, you didn't have 25 years of experience. You had one year of experience 25 times. You see, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I don't know whether you've been a Christian for... Six months, a year, 18 months, two years, whatever. All I'm saying is, he's saying, listen, one of the best things you can do is to push yourself forward and realize that by certain levels of you being a Christian, here's where your behavior should be. And here's some of the marks of that. That you, in fact, should be a teacher. Now, immediately, people go, whoa, 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 whoa. God hasn't called me to be a teacher. God didn't give me the gift of teaching. Doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. Every Christian is to get to a point in their life where they are a teacher in this sense. Again, yeah, not God doesn't expect everybody to be a pastor. I understand that. But in this context, with this word, all it means is this. It means that you and I get to a point in our spiritual walk with God where we're passing on to somebody else what God has taught us. That's what that word teaching means. It doesn't mean to formally have to stand up in front of a class and lead a Bible study, but it does mean this, that there should come a point in my life where I have grown to a certain level that I can pass on what I have learned and how I have grown with somebody else. And so he's saying, you should be teaching others, but notice... You still need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. So another mark of spiritual maturity is this. That I should be able to nourish myself without always needing somebody else to feed me. Just like a baby. Again, babies can't feed themselves. If it wouldn't be for their parents, they would die of starvation. And when you're a baby Christian, we understand, God understands, you need all the time others to feed you. But you're going to get to a point if you put yourself out there and you continue to be fed and you continue to grow and be a healthy baby Christian that you're going to come to the point like a child where after a couple of years, guess what? You're going to be able to feed yourself as well as have Pastor Lynn and Pastor Ron and others feed you. And that's a mark of spiritual maturity. 
where you can feed yourself the Word of God, where again, you can study it and read it and you can gain things out of it as well as always having to have others. It's not that when we're spiritually mature, we don't need other people to ever teach us. It's simply that we can get to a point where we can nourish ourselves. And again, the sad thing here is that the folks that he was writing to here in Hebrews had been to that point, but they've regressed. They've went back. And now they need these people to continue to teach them. And here's the sad thing, the, the ABCs. It's almost like they went back to kindergarten even though now they should be in college. And that's a sad thing. And that's what he's saying here when he says, you need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. You've gone back to needing milk, not solid food. And another mark of spiritual maturity then is a proper spiritual diet. And again, milk for babies, good stuff. Only thing they need. But eventually you're going to get to a point where if you grow, milk isn't going to cut it. You're going to need meat plus milk. And he's not ever saying, because I'll just tell you, I love milk still, okay? I drink a lot of milk. In fact, I tell people, the reason I'm so tall is because I drank a lot of milk when I was a child. But anyway, that's what my parents told me. I still drink milk every day. So it's not that you grow even as a Christian to the point where you don't want milk, you don't need, that milk's not cool. Sure it is. But just like physically, I also like to dig into a good steak every once in a while too, Okay? You need that solid food. And again, I realize that I'm preaching a lot here, teaching a lot now to the wrong people because the reason, again, you come to the mind is because you recognize you want the meat. And what we deal with here on Tuesday night is going to be more meat-oriented than maybe some other places. You might not get as much meat certain places. You're going to get it here, all right, as well as other places here at Cornerstone. That's what he's saying. Proper spiritual diet. We need both. And you need to be willing to allow yourself to be stretched a little bit. To go into a book like Hebrews that may have intimidated you in the past. I never read the book of Hebrews, never studied it. Okay. And you may, you may leave this study of Hebrews and go, well, I only got a couple things out of that study. Yeah, but guess what? You're taking those couple things with you that you didn't have before. And so you are growing. You are maturing, and throughout your years, you'll just build upon the foundation of learning that you get from studying each book of the Bible as in-depth as we can here in the mine on Tuesday night. Notice, verse 13, For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. couple things. Not only do I need a proper spiritual diet as a mark of maturity, I need accompanying spiritual exercise. Again, just like the physical. The word trained there in verse 14 is in the original language, the word gymnazo, where we get the word gymnasium from. And so he's saying, guess what, guys? Now we've got a proper diet. And so all he's talking about here, guess what, is really good spiritual health. He's saying, you want to be spiritually healthy? Here's how you become spiritually healthy. You keep that push. Keep pushing towards making progress all the time. Never be satisfied with where you are. Be, get, get to a point where you can share what you're learning with others and be willing to do so. Be able to nourish yourself. Have a proper spiritual diet. Don't always 
go with milk, but get that meat in there that we all need, and then be willing to get into the arena and work out a little bit. Which really goes back to how important it is to get involved in some type of ministry or service and things like that. Because then what we're learning just isn't going into our head, but it's being fleshed out in our life. And we're able then to apply all the things that we are learning in our proper spiritual diet. And in a sense, we're spiritually working out. Because this word also talks about the importance of really it needs to be a habit. It needs to be something that I build into my life even on an everyday basis. Where the word that I'm taking in doesn't just fill my mind, but it affects the way I live and I'm working out. So that every day really should be a spiritual workout. Where I take what I'm getting and I'm fleshing it out. And then here's the great result. The great result that is promised to those who are striving towards spiritual maturity is a growing discernment and insight into the ways and will of God. Notice verse 14 again. Solid food is for the mature. And here's the outcome of being a mature Christian. Your perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. How can mature Christians have a discernment and an insight that, again, a baby Christian? Because of this. Because hopefully over the years that they have grown they have matured. They went through all these steps. And then obviously they're going to have a discernment and an insight into things that somebody who's just getting started doesn't have. But the cool thing is, God says, but you can have it too. Maturity, spiritual maturity isn't just for certain kinds of people. Spiritual maturity isn't just for pastors and missionaries or elders or whatever. This spiritual maturity can be for any Christian who wants it bad enough. You just got to keep on keeping on and keep moving forward. So notice, that's why then in chapter 6, he says, Therefore, folks, I know what you're going through is hard. I know it's difficult. I know you feel like giving up. But we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity because there's no other choice. Because the choice isn't to go backwards. That's no choice for the Christian. That's just not even an option. The only option is to continue to move forward. Continue to move forward to maturity, to continue to make progress. And again, I want to emphasize that word in chapter 6, verse 1, progress. That's what it's all about. It's not about perfection. It's about you making progress. So that, and I've shared this with the Mind Bible study before, here's what it should look like. That Jeff Royce can say, that today I was a little bit more like Jesus Christ than I was yesterday. That I was a little bit more like Jesus Christ this week than I was last week. That I was a little bit more like Jesus Christ this month than I was last month. That I was a little bit more like Jesus Christ in January and February of 2007 than I was January and February of 2006. That's what it should look like. Progress. So don't get discouraged if you're not perfect. Don't get discouraged if you're not everything that you feel God desires you to be down the road. Be encouraged that you're a little bit further down the road now than you were just a little while ago. And use that to continue to make progress one step at a time. That's what it's about, making progress. So be encouraged.
All right. I've preached enough. I'm stopping for a moment for comments, questions, and all that good stuff. <laughs> well, spiritual maturity is the reason I do what I do. If, if somebody asks me, why is it that you feel your whole life in ministry has been to teach people the Bible, it's, it's for this. Because I believe, again, that salvation is not the end. It's just the beginning. And God has burdened my heart to get that message out to people and then to encourage them and help them become all that God created them to be and help them to see that, that there's so much more out there in the Christian life that God wants us to bring. So that, it's the passion of my heart. That's probably why I'm even more passionate about it than I usually am. So. Pardon? Born again. Yes. Yes, yes. Melchizedek, great guy. Right, tribe of Judah, line of David, yeah. Right, like Melchizedek. Although it is very in, uh, interesting that the only other mention of Melchizedek besides Genesis, where he actually appeared to Abraham, you know, all that, that story in Genesis, and the Hebrews, is David brings him up in the Psalms. So you have three references to Melchizedek in the Bible. Genesis, the Psalms, David, that David wrote, and uh, the book of Hebrews, the only place you'll find Melchizedek. But you're right, yeah. He wasn't physically related to David or anything in any way. It was totally a separate order from anything. And that's what made Christ then able to, again, to the Jew, it was, you know, God, He wouldn't have had to do that, but it was almost like He set a precedent way back even before the Levitical priesthood to say one day to the Jew, you cannot deny the priesthood of Christ for you just because he did not come through the line of Levi. You have to consider him because he's after the order of Melchizedek. And God had set that up way before all that even came into play. So again, God is a God of order. And, and you know, you, you can't say, well, God, what about... God has all his bases covered, if you will, even to the Jew. John, yeah. Well, okay. That's okay. Mr. M. We just call him Mel. Yeah, Mel, yeah. Right. No, I do not believe it was Jesus. And, and there's some people that believe it was a Christophany, which means a literal appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, pre-Bethlehem. And I do believe Christ did appear in the Old Testament before Bethlehem, but I don't believe it was one of those times. The language that's used in Genesis, in the Hebrew, it says he was like this and he was like that. And when it says he had no genealogy, and we're going to get to that in our study, he had no record of genealogy, he had no date of birth, he had no date of death. He was like unto. Uh, the language there really, to me, seals it. That it was just somebody, again, that God had placed there in history, a man, but because of all these things, Christ, was uh, he was a type of Christ in that respect and a link to the priesthood of Christ. Was he really a man? I think he was a man. Some interpret him as an angel. Some interpret him as, again, Christ in the Old Testament. I interpret him as a man, as a literal king of Salem named Melchizedek. Yeah. Yeah. And Salem was... Jerusalem. Yeah. And king. Yes. Right, right. And the thing that really gets the Jews here, and we're going to get to this, 
is that Abraham, okay, to them, the father of their nation, gave tithes to Melchizedek, which acknowledged that he was greater than Abraham. So then when Christ comes along in the order of Melchizedek, it's like, see, Christ is greater than Abraham too. It's just, again, very interesting how God did it. The other thing, I'll just throw this out since we're talking about this, so that some of you maybe are like confused or whatever. When Christ appeared in the Old Testament, He would always, because He was God, accept worship. So you can differentiate between an angel, a man, and Christ in the Old Testament because if that being was accepting the worship of human beings, he was Christ. Because every time you see human beings trying to worship an angel in the Old Testament, they're like, get up! (laughs) Don't worship me! I'm just an angel! And they refused the worship of human beings. So that's why if you read through the Old Testament and you see places in the Old Testament where somebody is worshiping and they're allowing the worship, that's probably Christ. If you see where they're trying to worship this being, like an angel or a man, and they refuse the worship, that's a good clue that you can interpret that, that that wasn't Christ. Okay? Just a good little interpretive technique there. All right, good stuff. Are we ready to mature and keep on making progress here? Yes. Are we ready to move forward? Yes. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Because I'm coming now to a passage that I'm just going to tell you it's probably the most controversial passage in all the Bible. I mean, there's just no other way to cut it. It has caused more problems, and there are more different interpretations of Hebrews chapter 6 than any other passage of Scripture. Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> but don't tell anybody else, but I'm going to give you the right interpretation. Okay. Just don't tell Pastor Lynn because he and I disagree on this. <laughs> oh, goodness. No, you know, I'm just teasing. Now, here's the deal. In this passage of Scripture, I think where, he's, where his heart is, is this. Two things you have to do when you approach this passage of Scripture. You have to first figure out, is he talking to people who don't have God in their life or people who do? Now, Lynn and I agree. We think he's talking to people who do have God in their life. And here's why. Notice in verse 9, in the context of Hebrews chapter 6, as he goes back and addresses his audience here, he says in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 9, But in your case, dear friends, even though we speak like this, and he was really giving them a warning, he says, We are convinced of better things, and here's the key, relating to salvation or to those who have salvation. Alright? So, I think it's clear here in the context that he's, first of all, he's talking then to Christians, to people who have Jesus Christ in their life. Now, then that brings up, though, a whole other thing. Because this passage, more than any other passage in the Bible, is used to teach that you can lose your salvation. Alright? By those who believe you can lose your salvation. Alright, I'm just going to throw that out there tonight. Okay? We're in the mind. We do deep things here. This is what we're talking about. Alright? I don't believe the Bible teaches that. There are good people that do. And probably the passage that they would go to 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 show you that you can lose your salvation more than anything else is Hebrews chapter 6. 
And here's why. Here's what he says. Therefore, we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity. Not laying again this foundation again. Repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Those are all the ABCs, by the way, of the Christian faith. And this is what we intend to do if God permits. Now, here's where the trouble starts. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy to renew them again to repentance since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding Him up to contempt. It's going to stop right there because that's a mouthful. I believe what he's simply saying here is this. The key is in the original language, and I realize you've got to do some digging and studying, but a lot of times that's how you have to unlock it. All right? That's why the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew. Because the Greek is so precise. That's why God chose the Greek language to be the language that the New Testament was in. That's why I've shared with you before, we in English use one word for love. The Greeks have four, word for love, four words for love, and they all have a different meaning. And they're all found in the New Testament. So a much deeper language, much richer language than the English language. Or just like we've already talked about time tonight. We have one word for time. T-I-M-E. It can mean all kinds of different things, but we have one word. The Greeks had three different words for time. So again, very precise. So that again, when matters of interpretation came up, and this is what you hear all the time, well, you guys have different, and you know, one group has one interpretation and one has another. You're right. But part of the reason is because we've got to get very precise. And the first thing that I, you know, challenge those who maybe are going to try to really press me on something is, have you studied the Greek or the Hebrew here and really seen what that word meant? Because if you have, then we'll start to have. But if you're just going on what that means or whatever, then... I think you need to go a little bit deeper than that sometimes to get what it really means because that's why God chose the Greek language. Okay? So, the key here is that this passage is dealing in what's called a temporal participle, which means that the key here is, in verse 6, this is all predicated on the fact of while they are in this condition, they cannot be renewed again back to repentance. Not since... But while they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over. So in other words, whatever he's talking about there is dealing with the fact that whatever is impossible is dealing with the fact that there's something temporarily going on in their life that is preventing them and making it impossible for them to do something. Now again, something else that I've shared with is some folks say this passage teaches you can lose your salvation. I say, okay. If you go that way, that's fine. But to be consistent, using this passage to teach you can lose your salvation, then you have to be consistent and say that this passage then also teaches you can never get it back once you've lost it. Which I've never found anybody who believes that you can lose your salvation who believes you also can't get it back at some time and be born again again somewhere along the line. This passage, if you're going to be consistent in your interpretation, says it's impossible so that if you're going to say this passage is teaching you can lose your salvation, then you've got to be consistent and say, and once you've lost it, it's gone. 
It's gone. I cannot get it back. I think the most correct biblical interpretation is simply this. He's saying here that if you are a Christian who you, like the context, you became dull and sluggish, instead of moving forward and continuing to spiritually mature, you start going backwards that you've got to realize something. And here's a very serious warning. And I'm not watering this passage down at all. He's saying, do you realize that those opportunities that would have been yours during that time where you were sliding backwards are gone forever? And you can never get those opportunities back ever. I mean, just like we approach our life, that God only gives us one life. That's it. One life. There is no, I get to the end of my life and I've, God, can you give me that life to do over again? There is no do-overs with our life. There's also no do-overs with our days. And so for every day that we're not moving towards spiritual maturity and that we're making progress, those opportunities that could be ours if we were moving forward and making progress and spiritually maturing, they're forever gone. They're not, I mean, it's not that we couldn't get other opportunities later on down the road, but those opportunities that day when we've got our eyes off of Christ, when we are committing apostasy, when we are crucifying, in a sense, the Son of God all over again and holding Him up, when we are living an out-and-out rebellion against God and we are at a point in our life where we are at a low point spiritually, the opportunities that could have been ours during that time, that's gone and they can never be regained. So he's saying to these folks, again, this is a, that's why in the context, this is a whole motivation to keep moving forward. He's just simply reminding us of how precious time is. And how, you know, if we don't keep our eyes on Christ and you start moving backward, wow, you can't go back and live that day with, you just were totally off track spiritually. You can't go back and do that day over again. Now, God may give you another day. That's good. Then live that day to the fullest. But you can't go back and live that bum day over again. It's gone. Boom. Over. So it just reminds us again how precious time is and all of that. And he's simply reminding them of that in this whole context about, again, key verse, Hebrews 6.1, let's make progress. Let's go past the ABCs. Let's move on to maturity. So everything that he said before that about Melchizedek and all of that and the marks of spiritual maturity and everything he says after that, I believe, again, if you interpret the Bible the way you should within its context, is all talking about spiritual maturity, and he's talking to Christians, and he's talking to us here about lost opportunities. But notice in verse 9, he says, But in your case, dear friends, even though we speak like this, we are convinced of better things relating to salvation. In other words, he's saying, but I hope you're not in this category. I don't want you to be like this anymore. I want you to get your lives turned around, begin to push yourselves forward, Because notice then in verse 10, I love this verse. Great encouragement. He says, for God is not unjust. Literally it means, no way can God be an unjust God. So, you know what, that really deals with a lot of different stuff. You know, if you're wrestling with, why does God this? Well, here we've got to come back to the fact that the Bible clearly declares God is not an unjust God. And one of the things that demonstrates He's not unjust is He will never forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for His name in having served and continuing to serve the saints. The cool thing about God, the Bible says, is He'll forget our sin, throw it into the depth of the sea, 
never to be brought up in our face again, but he'll never forget any of the good stuff we've done. Never. Ever. And so I'm, I'm firmly believed, because you all know, human beings, we forget a lot. That we'll probably, and here's, here's one of the cool things then about heaven. We'll get to heaven and God will be going, I'm rewarding you for this, and, I'm re- and we'll go, I did that? I said that? I didn't even remember I did that. Oh yeah, but I remembered on September 23rd, 1967, you did this. And I'm like, I did? God is never going to forget anything good, any kind of ministry. Any, and here's the, that's why we serve ultimately God. We, we I mean, yeah, we serve others, but we don't expect you know, recognition and reward from others. If that's our motivation, then we won't be serving very long. You know, if we're waiting for the pats on the back all the time and, oh, you're so great and all that, none of us would serve very long. We serve ultimately because we ultimately are serving God. And we know, based upon Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, that whatever I do for God is never going to be forgotten. It will always be rewarded. And God is going to remember all those things I've said, all those things I've done, and He is going to congratulate me and reward me for those things. And I like this too. Notice it says there in verse 10, the things we've done through His name or in His name. And what are those things? The things we've done to each other. Which is taught over and over in the Bible when like in Matthew 25 when Jesus says, if you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So every time we, again, impact another human being and help them in any way and encouraging them in any way, we're doing it to Christ Himself. We're doing it for Christ Himself. And He will never, ever forget that. I think that is so cool. So guess what? You're going to have rewards up there in heaven you didn't even know were coming to you. Because you forgot about that stuff and God never will. That's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Alright, yes? I don't even understand what I'm saying. <laughs> So you're basically saying that you can't lose your salvation, but what you're losing are the opportunities you could have had while you were messing around, not believing, or doing what you're supposed to do. Exactly. And they can't be regained. You know, you, is, you and I can't go back and live those days over again. Exactly. He's losing the opportunities that he had to make an impact for Christ and encourage other people and all of that. Yeah, he's losing that. But no, he does not lose his salvation. And I realize there are good people that believe you can lose your salvation. I'm just not one of them. No, that's a good point. Yeah, the, the, the list of good things will be a little bit shorter because he wasn't moving forward and pressing towards maturity. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. This is kind of an odd question. Why? Why wouldn't it have been worded more clearly so there wouldn't be the confusion? <laughs> I'm not, that's a weird question to ask, but well, I mean, is it because he wanted us to dig deeper to go understand? You know, to search it out for the same reason Jesus used parables. I, I don't understand why he wouldn't have made it more clear. I think it is clear in the Greek. Oh, okay. I think, again, when you start translating the Greek and Hebrew and the Aramaic, the three languages that the Bible was written in, into any language, you have some difficulties. You have some difficulties. Again, not that you can't overcome those difficulties. But that's why I tell people, clearly, when you are reading and studying the Bible, one big, big, big tenet of interpreting, interpreting the Bible properly is this. If you know the Bible clearly teaches something over here, you know that. 
and you come across a verse or a passage of Scripture that looks like it contradicts that, you've got to keep turning that diamond because the Bible, its passages and verses are like this multifaceted diamond. You've got to keep turning it and finding where that fits because you know God doesn't contradict Himself. God's not going to say one thing over here and then contradict Himself over here. So what you may have to do or I have to do at a time like that is go back to the original languages or find some kind of Bible tool and reference tool to help me get to that point because I know it can't contradict. I know, it can't. I know God's not going to talk out of both sides of His mouth. He's totally consistent with His message. And so that's where the Greek and Hebrew does come in handy. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot understand what God has for us with our English Bible. But I am saying that there are times where at least digging a little bit deeper than just the English Bible may clear up some confusion that you may have through that translation, you see. That, that, that. But it's like one of the great, again, tenets of, of Scripture when you read and study is, if it makes sense, seek no further sense. So when you're reading the Bible, if it makes sense, seek no further sense. Now, there are passages like where Jesus says in the Gospels, I am the door. We know because of the context and other verses around it that Jesus didn't mean he was this wooden thing with a handle on it. We knew what he meant by that by looking a little bit deeper. But when Jesus says, you have eternal life, I take that. I don't need to seek any further sense in eternal life. And guess what? There's only one way to define eternal life in the Greek language. Eternal. If, if I could lose it, then guess what? It wouldn't be eternal life. It would be temporary life or something. It, he would not have called it eternal life. If I have eternal life, then I have it for eternity. I mean, there's no other way to define that word. There really isn't. Yes? You have eternal life as long as you believe in Jesus. If Jesus is, you know, the door, if you slam the door shut, you know, some, sometimes that's the question. You know, if somebody denies who is a Christian, denies Christ, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, oh, oh he's going. But that, that, that's, you know. Yeah, I understand that. But, again, I think that where the confusion comes in is the Bible also teaches that there are going to be people who profess to be Christians who never were. And that's why we have to leave this all up to God because God is the only one that can see a person's heart. We, we can't see truly what their heart is like. And that's where God comes in. It's like He knows the person's heart. He knows their sincerity. He knows whether they were genuine or not. Yes, over here and then back here. I never knew you. Right. Matthew chapter 7. Well, I think that they thought that they were going to be in heaven, but they thought they were going to be there because of their good works. Again, have we not done many wonderful works? And what Jesus was using that passage to illustrate was getting to heaven is not based on living up to a set of rules and regulations and works like the Jews were trying to do. It was through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's when he said, I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. The Bible clearly teaches none of us can be good enough by our good works to get to heaven. By grace, we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a free gift, and it is a personal relationship with God. And yet, you're right. There will be people 
who believe that through their good works and through being, quote-unquote, good moral people, that they're going to get to heaven. But again, I just, based upon the Bible, tell you, the Bible teaches that no one, Jesus said it, no one comes to the Father but what? By me. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one can come to the Father but by me. It's only through a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. And we can be unapologetic about it only because Jesus is unapologetic. He didn't apologize for that. And I, sh- I share with people, look, people talk about being exclusive and whatever. Exclusivity would be if God would have said, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and only people from Canada can get there. No, God said, God so loved the world so that there's only one way to heaven, but everybody in the world can still get there. In fact, the Bible says that there will be people from every place in the world in heaven. The book of Revelation says people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every dialect, every skin color, everybody all over the world, there will be people from every place in heaven. So, that's not exclusive to me. Yes? You looked forward to Jesus. Yes. They got saved the same way we get saved. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Belief. Faith. But they were looking forward to Christ coming. We, on the other side, look back, in a sense, if you will. Because You know, either you're looking forward to when Christ was here and what He did, or like us, we're looking back. Either way. But we both have to look in faith and have to believe. So yeah, that's a A lot of people say, well, were people in the Old Testament saved different than people in the New Testament? Did they come to a relationship with God differently? No. They came through faith. They came through belief. It wasn't through their good works. Because again, the Bible teaches there's not enough amount of good works that we could do to ever have a relationship with God. But yeah, somebody... Yes, sir. Very possible. It's very possible, yes, that, you know, there was a lot of people in that day who, again, like religious leaders of Israel who claimed to know God and, and, and yet they were going to miss it. They were going to miss it. And again, folks, please, a lot of different interpretations of what we've just talked about tonight. A lot of good people on different sides here, okay? Here's the cool thing. You study it for yourself. You read it for yourself, you come to your own conclusions. Don't leave, and This is one of the things we at Cornerstone especially emphasize. Don't believe something because Lynn said it, Ron said it, Jeff said it, anybody says it. You, you come to your own convictions and conclusions. We don't want you basing your beliefs off of what you, you get taught but then you go, you study it, you come to your own conclusions. and That's the biblical way to do it anyway. All right? You come to your own convictions and conclusions about it. But I think it's cool, and I think the bottom line here is, no matter where we all sit on all these verses we've looked at tonight, the bottom line is this, and then I've got to close. We're, we want to move forward. That's the bottom line, right? Yeah. Move forward yeah. to maturity. If you don't take anything else out of tonight, chapter 6, verse 1. Let's keep making progress. Let's keep moving forward. Oh, yeah. And let's fill up that room next week down there. All right? That's moving forward. Let's close in prayer. You guys are wonderful. I love you. 
Lord God, thank you so much for the time we've spent in your word tonight. And uh, Lord, just, uh, just use it, Lord, to encourage us, to inspire us to a higher level of, of our walk with you. More than anything else, Lord, I just want these folks that come on Tuesday night and take their time on Tuesday night to come to be encouraged, to keep growing, to keep maturing, to keep moving forward in their relationship with Christ. Lord, that's what it's all about. And just help us to do that this next week until we meet back again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great week, guys. We love you. Take care.